We are continuing, of course, our study through the Gospel of John today. Last week, in the first half of the Gospel of chapter 13, we looked at the washing of the disciples' feet and the example of servanthood that Jesus set. Uh, And this week, that carries on for us a bit. As we remember the importance of that example, we follow that example. As Jesus said, follow this example very clearly. Uh, And then we're going to get into more specifically of how we deal with one another. And we look at, uh, we're going to see how even Judas uh, interacts with Jesus and and with all the disciples there and and how Peter is interacting with Jesus. But then this great command that Jesus gives, but we begin reading in chapter 13, verse 18. It says this, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen but the scripture may be fulfilled but that the scripture may be fulfilled he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me now i tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass that you may believe that i am he most assuredly i say to you he who receives whomever i send receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he uh, he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Father, we look to you in your word and we glorify you. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us by your word today and draw us closer to you. And Lord, we do just continue to lift up the situations that are going on around the world, Lord. We do, as we said before, pray for Haiti. We pray for John Wildo there. We pray for Pastor Leo and the the ministry to the children there. 
Lord, we pray for you to move in a mighty way. Lord, we pray for the situation in Afghanistan. We pray for you to move, God. Only you can intervene and bring change. We know that you, Jesus, are the answer. So we look to you and we hope in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we are today looking at a few different uh, sections on the, in Scripture and, and, and throughout this whole passage. We're going to see three different things of, that took place. And there's quite a contrast between these three different things. And even between Judas and Peter and the way that things were handled uh, and the way that they handled things. But we begin there, verse 18, of course, I, Jesus saying, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. If you remember last week, if you were with us, we talked a lot about what Jesus knows, right? And Jesus, in, in, in all that we looked at, we saw that Jesus knew the coming death, his coming death, his imminent death. He knew the pain and the rejection that he would face in that death. He knew his authority, he knew his identity, and yet still was committed to going to the cross and laying down his life. But even before that, of course, laid down uh, his garments and, and gird himself up and washed the disciples' feet in that place and setting the example of servanthood, of humility. And now we see very clearly that Jesus knows his betrayer. This is no surprise to him. It wasn't like after, you know, when, when Judas came up in the garden and kissed him and, and, and that was the sign and he was betrayed by Judas. Jesus wasn't like, what? No, Judas, not you, right? There was no surprise there and there's no surprise here and now as Jesus is identifying his betrayer. But what we see here specifically, uh, what Jesus says, he says, I know whom I've chosen, I know whom I have chosen. Jesus not only knows that Judas will betray him, but Jesus knows Judas. And he's known him from the beginning. You see, much like when Jesus chose the other 12, he knew them, he looked at them, he saw the transformation that would take place in their life. If you remember, we studied it earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus looked at Simon he said, you are Simon, you shall be Cephas, right? You are Simon, you are one way, but man, am I going to change your life? So in the same way that he knew Simon Peter, he knew the change that was going to take place in his life. He knew the influence that he could have in his life. He also knew the influence that the devil would have in Judas's life. And yet he said, I know whom I chose. And he chose him. Jesus, not surprised by this, of course, because one, he knew him. So he knew Judas. He knew what the, the influence of the devil in his life. But then he says specifically, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. Jesus was not surprised, not just because he knew Judas, but because of prophecy. We continually see prophecy fulfilled throughout Scripture, and especially here in John, we've seen it many times. It's, it, we, we've referred back to it in the Old Testament, and we see how Jesus fulfills prophecy and, and how many of the prophecies are fulfilled, and that's what this is about here. 
It is that this scripture might be fulfilled, proving that God has a perfect plan in place. And that perfect plan that is in place is for our redemption. And he's not surprised by anything. You know, we can connect so, so directly the dots between prophecy and the fact that Jesus is not surprised. That's the situation here in John chapter 13. There is a prophecy, and the prophecy is in Psalm chapter 41. It says, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus speaking so specifically of a, of a terrible, terrible betrayal. My own familiar friend, one who is so dear and so close to me, whom I trusted, who ate bread, who ate with me, who sat with me, who, who had great deep fellowship with me, has lifted up his heel against me, has completely betrayed him. Jesus speaking of the, the, the horrific betrayal here that is going to take place. And so he's saying that that will be fulfilled, that scripture will be fulfilled but as we see the connection between prophecy and Jesus here, not surprised at all, we can today think the same way. All of the prophecy that is being fulfilled in our world today, all of the things that are happening in the world today that we might be terrified by, that we might be so concerned, or like, oh no, what's going to happen? Jesus is not surprised. Jesus is not surprised when people turn their back, when people's hearts are hardened, as we talked about last week, because the Bible says that it's going to happen. And in the same way, Jesus is not surprised by the betrayal of Judas, because the scripture said it was going to happen. Jesus foretells this betrayal, not to bring warning to the disciples, not to say to them, hey guys, look out because there's a betrayer at hand. No. In fact, he tells them of this so that once they find out, once it happens, they might look to Jesus and be even more amazed at who he is. Understanding that he said this is exactly what's gonna happen, now here it is, it's happened. And it brings greater confidence in who Jesus is. After seeing the betrayal, they would understand Jesus in a greater way. They would know him more. Greater confidence in Jesus helps us see clearly what opposes Jesus. The more we get to know him, the more we can see clearly what opposes him and what opposes truth, what opposes the word of God. That's why we can just get to know him, press in more and more. It should bring us into greater intimacy and worship, not indignation against the world, but worship of Jesus, not getting distracted because we have set our mind on the things of this world. We get so caught up, we get so distracted, we get so concerned, we, we run around so worried about everything. You start scrolling social media and you're like, oh no, the world is going to end as believers in Jesus Christ, we actually can be happy. <laughs> yes, Jesus is coming back. This brings great joy to us because we have great hope. 
It shouldn't, it shouldn't bring greater indignation. It should bring greater worship of Jesus. And of course, yes, we have righteous anger over the things that are going on in the world today. But are we to fight these battles against the world, or do we recognize that we fight not against flesh and blood? And we should press in to worship Jesus. That's what he desires. And so, of course, then, he says that, uh, now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. They would know and understand him more. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. The disciples are, are going to be sent out, and it's not that far from now. And what Jesus is claiming here is that that betrayal has no power and no victory over him and over the truth, over the message, over the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the disciples will be sent. This betrayal and attempt to silence the truth will fail. And a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit would then come through Jesus and his death and resurrection. And the promise that he gives of the Holy Spirit. So those who bring the message, receiving the message of Jesus from those sent by Jesus, will bring the same belief in Jesus. Then we continue verse 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in his spirit. This is, this is, we've seen this before. We saw in John 11, he wept. We saw that he groaned in his spirit. It's the similar terminology here that he was troubled in his spirit. He had a deep care and compassion for Judas, specifically. He was hurt over this, and it wasn't just like his feelings were hurt. Like, man, he betrayed me. He's going to betray me. He got all upset about it like we would. If we knew somebody was going to betray us, we would be so hurt in ourselves. But he was hurt over the victory that the enemy, the devil, has over Judas. And he demonstrates his love for Judas. He has demonstrated great love for Judas. And Jesus is troubled for Judas because of the influence of the devil in his life. He says that one will betray him. That's what he's, he's grieving for Judas, and he's saying that one will betray him. He's moved by all of it, but still under control and in control, as he says, one will betray. And again, there's no surprise here. The disciples then, of course, verse 22, they looked at one another perplexed about whom he spoke. The disciples are confused, which tells us they had no clue that it could be Judas. It wasn't like Judas was this evil guy, you know, and we get this picture. When we think of Judas, we think like, man, he just had a sinister plan from the beginning. He was a bad guy. It didn't look like it for sure. Because if Jesus, if he was a bad guy and, and things, or he looked like the bad guy and he, he always had an evil plan on the side and, and they could see it, <coughs> they could identify it, they would call it out. And when Jesus said, one will betray me, they'd be like, of course, Judas is the guy. He's going to betray him. But they all looked at themselves and were like, oh, 
Matthew tells us, right? Matthew chapter 26 is they all looked at themselves. Is it I? Is it I? Is, this, is Jesus talking about some like mistake that we're going to make that would be betraying him? An accidental betrayal? No. This is clear. This is straightforward. And, and, he, and Jesus is identifying that it is straightforward, but they are confused by this. And they're confused, not even understanding. There's no way it could be Judas in their mind. It proves that he was not the clear choice as the bad guy. It's, you know, you, you, it, this is, we see it, the same thing happening today. There's, there's nothing new under the sun, right? You watch a movie and you think like, oh, that's a bad guy right there. But it's actually the guy who was like, seemed like a good guy the whole time and turned their back and destroyed everybody. You're like, no way, right? Well, it all goes back. It's the same story. We should not be surprised, right? But Peter, as he often does, he wants to take care of the situation. Now, there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. Peter taking then the situation into his hands is like, all right, I've got to figure this out. As they all were like, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Nobody's suspecting Judas. And Peter's like, I need to make sure it's not me is what I need to do. I'm going to ask. I'm going to find out. But I'm not, hey, can't get, hey, Jesus, hey. Ah, it's not working. John, you know, hey, John, ask him. You know, give him a little nudge or something. Find out who is it. This is the picture that's set, but first we see John identifying himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And we might think, man, John, he's so prideful, isn't he? He's the one whom Jesus loved. You know, there's several times that he is identified as the one whom Jesus loved. And each time is directly connected to the cross. You know, so we see it's not just here, of course, this is the upper room, and we see that he's identified as such. Then it's again at the cross. He identifies as the one whom Jesus loved. Then at the tomb, the one whom Jesus loved. And then with the resurrected Christ at Galilee, the one whom Jesus loved. John, being the one whom Jesus loved, identifies himself as near to Jesus in his suffering. In this salvation journey, in the, in the redemption plan, John is just identifying to say, I was near to Jesus in the midst of this plan of redemption unfolding. And it's important that we understand that. It's not just John saying, like, I was the closest, I'm his favorite, and that's all. But John actually understands more and more every day the love of Jesus and that he is nearest to him when Jesus hung on a cross, when Jesus rose from the dead, when Jesus, right before Jesus ascended to heaven. But Peter wants to find out. He wants to find out, first of all, if it's not him and then if he needs to go to battle for Jesus. And John that he motions to John, hey, John, find out. John asks, who is it? Straightforward. Now, we, what we know is that John was right next to Jesus, right? And Jesus then here identifies Judas without identifying Judas to everybody. 
But he says to John, it is, the, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Jesus identifies Judas by giving him bread, by breaking bread with him, by fulfilling scripture. And so at the table here, there could only be two people next to Jesus, right? We know John was one of them. It would seem that Judas was on the other side. And as John leaned in and he says, Jesus, who is it? He says, the one who I, am, who I give the bread to. And then who would be right there next to him? Again, pointing us to the fact that Judas was in that place of nearness. And he would, I would imagine, put himself in that place to look like he was good. He was a good guy. He was right by Jesus' side. Maybe he's there taking notes, say, okay, Jesus, what's next? Okay, Jesus, what's next? Okay, Jesus, what's next? And he's, okay, we're, gonna, we're giving money to the poor over here. We're giving money to the poor over here. We're giving money to my pocket over here. And, we're gonna, and he's just, he's, he's doing these things secretly, but looking like he's so near to Jesus. And Jesus turns, he gives him this bread. Perhaps Jesus put him there, or perhaps he put himself there so that it was the appearance of nearness with Jesus, making it more difficult, of course, for anyone to believe that Judas was, in fact, the betrayer. Now, after the piece of bread, in verse 27, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Satan entered him. According to John 13, verse 2, that we studied last week, the betrayal was already in Judas's heart, right? We saw that in, in verse 2, in uh, supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. Now we see, after Jesus gives the bread, that Satan actually entered him. And this, this reminds us once again that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, right? There's a lot more to the battle that's going on than just the person sitting next to us or the person sitting in front of us or the people that we think we're in battle. We're not against people in battle. We are against the devil in battle as believers in Jesus Christ. And so what do we need? We need more prayer. We need more humility As Jesus served, we follow that example. That's what he said earlier in the chapter. Here, after Jesus gave him the bread, the barrier was broken. The devil had his in. And Jesus showed great love toward Judas, but it was received as judgment. And that's something we see often in the world today. People misunderstanding love for judgment. People misunderstanding love for condemnation because they don't know what love really looks like because they don't know Jesus. Satan, of course, as we even discussed last week, could not enter Judas without being given entry by Judas. Judas opened the door. Knock at the door, and he opened up. 
And Jesus says, not to Judas, but to Satan, what you do, do quickly. Because Jesus knows, and no one else does. Perhaps Judas had work to do is what the rest of them thought. Oh, Judas, Jesus is sending him on an errand. He's going to go take care of business he, because he takes care of business. That's what he does. He's the treasurer of the group, and he's going to go pay the bills, or he's going to go give to the poor, or he's going to fulfill something. And what that tells us about Judas is he was busy about the work of the ministry. But he didn't have real intimacy with Jesus. Sometimes maybe you get super involved in, at church and you're, you're like, the more I get involved at church, the more that my sins will be forgiven, right? Or the more cleansed I'll be or the better I'll look at least. And that's what Judas was, that guy who was constantly, man, they all thought, oh, Judas, Jesus just sent him to go take care of business. And he's taking care of business. But Jesus knew, the rest of them didn't. In spite of the great ministry and love and teaching of Jesus, Judas still betrayed him because he allowed the devil to influence and even come into him. We have to be cautious. We have to understand what, is, what it is that opposes Jesus and not allow the enemy to have a foothold in our lives. Verse 31 After Judas went out, immediately he went out because Jesus told him to. Verse 31, so when he had, had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Jesus is glorified. His death is set in motion. That's what he's speaking of. Now, okay, Judas has left. Jesus just said, what you do, do quickly. What is he gonna do? He's going to turn Jesus over to the authorities. And so Jesus knows that. He says, okay, it's happening. It's all set in motion. Jesus is completely in control of the situation. He commanded the devil to go. Go, do what you gotta do. He commanded him to go. He did it. He, he, Judas walked out the door, and now Jesus says, okay, my death, my betrayal, it's set in motion. It's all happening. It's only a matter of time for Jesus to be glorified. That glorification, of course, as we talked about in chapter 12, is his death. Five times in these two verses, Jesus used the word glorify. Because he needed to claim the cross as his glorification, his death as this glorification. To most, the cross would represent humiliation, but to Jesus, it represented glorification because it wasn't the end. If we look at death as the end, then we have forgotten what Jesus has done. The cross brought his glory, not his, his humiliation. Verse 33, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. 
you will seek me, and as I said to the Jews where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus speaking of his departure. The disciples left all to follow him. And Jesus addresses them as his little children. We haven't seen that before, not in the Gospel of John, but now he addresses them as his little children. Dear little ones. See, let's keep it simple, guys. That simple-mindedness of a child that Jesus says to have the faith of a child, and now he talks to his disciples as little children. Let's keep it simple. My departure is coming. But now to them, that would have been a bomb dropped. They left everything to follow Jesus. They spent every day with Jesus for these last three and a half years, and they thought that, just like the Jews, they thought that Jesus was going to rise up to be a political power, to rule and reign over the bad Roman government. But Jesus came to save. Jesus came to lay down his life. And he says to them, even as I told the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. So, I say this to you. Jesus gives a command. Because where I'm going, you cannot follow. Here's a command, a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus commands this, gives this new commandment, and the first commandment, the first covenant, was written on stone tablets. The Ten Commandments given to man. Here's the things that are going to govern your life. Live by these. But Jesus says a new commandment. It's different. And the commandment is love. And Jesus was asked the question before, what is the greatest commandment, right? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We know that the commandment, the greatest commandment is love. But now he clarifies it a little bit. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 34 says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Right, that's talking about the first commandment. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord for they all shall know me. From the least of them, to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is the new covenant. Jeremiah is writing of a new covenant that would come, pointing to Jesus Christ. And that new covenant, and Jesus is talking about it, the new covenant, the new commandment is a transformation that's going to take place. 
It's not going to be written on stone tablets. It's going to be written on your heart and mind. A renewing of the mind that's going to take place. We see that, of course, Paul says that in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. To not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul understood this well. I am reminded of the book of Philippians. 23 times in the book of Philippians, Paul writes about the mind or thoughts. 23 times in that book. And we know the theme, the theme of the book of Philippians, rejoice. And he says again, rejoice, right? We read it this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. But how do we do that? By renewing our minds. How do we understand the new covenant, which is love, the new commandment, which is love, it's renewing our minds. It's being, it's being transformed by Jesus Christ and his love. We are truly changed by his love. And Peter, he doesn't quite get it yet, but he will. You see, Paul got it. He said he, under, he understood these things because he was transformed by Jesus and the love of Jesus. Paul, who was persecuting and murdering Christians, when Jesus showed up on the road to Damascus, he saw him, and Jesus didn't say, Paul, stop and strike him dead. But he transformed him, and he offered grace, and Paul had an understanding of that. But this commandment would be new in every way, Different in every way from what you have understood before, to love one another, as Jesus just demonstrated. He just had this whole demonstration, the, the foot-washing ceremony, the foot-washing service, if you would. The whole demonstration, he says, as I have loved you, as I have served you, as I, I have set the example and told you to follow the example, now love one another as I have loved you in humility. Love one another in servanthood. Love one another through sacrifice that Jesus would set not long after this in the cross. It's new in every way. It's a new definition of love. And then he goes on to say, verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's a new definition of love and it is actually our identity. This new commandment is our identity. Remember last week we talked about Jesus in his identity? He knew who he was. We can know who we are. It says that all will know. That includes us. All will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Not by your knowledge, not by your righteousness or holiness, not by your understanding, not by your deep theology, not by anything of those sorts, right? I mean, you could sit there, maybe you could start a, a YouTube channel and talk all about theology and wow people with your knowledge. But... As Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, look, if we have all this great speech, eloquent speech, if we have all knowledge and understanding, but have not love, it is a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. It is annoying, and it is empty. 
It'll actually bother people rather than benefit people. But love, and then he goes on to show us and demonstrate to us what love is. But we're not known by all of these other things, but we are known by our love, and specifically our love for one another. Church, we need to stop treating each other like garbage. Starts in the church. We get mad at the disunity of the world. How about the disunity of the church? People are backbiting constantly. People are causing division over minuscule little things, attacking each other over various tiny little differences rather than celebrating the unity that we have in Jesus Christ, which is what he's trying to show them. Serve one another, love one another. That's John 13. Betrayal is right there knocking at their door and Jesus says, serve one another and love one another. That's how we are known. That's how we are known by all. That is our identity. That's how we are known by Jesus himself. That's how we are known in ourselves and that's how we are known to the world around us. We gotta stop treating each other like garbage. We often think the worst of one another. But do we believe in Jesus? Do we believe in the love of Jesus? And do we believe that that Jesus is in our brother or sister in this room or in our church, the church around us? But stop battling against flesh and blood. Recognize that the devil has an influence in some people's lives, and we need to pray against that and love one another so that we can withstand. And this, of course, is part of the final words that Jesus is giving to his disciples before the cross. And what he's telling them, servanthood, humility, love, it's essential. That's how the church would grow. That's how the gospel would spread through the growth of the church, all coming back to the example of love and humility that Jesus set. Verse 36, now as we close this, this section out, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow. He already told him that, right? Peter, I already told you where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter starts with questioning Jesus. So we talked about last week, Peter tried to tell Jesus what to do. Bad idea, right? He says, you know, I, I said that last week, just don't tell Jesus what to do. That's a great starting point in our, in our understanding of Jesus. Don't tell Jesus what to do. But now Peter has got questions. Where are you going? Why can't I not follow you now? He had followed Jesus every moment of every day for these three years. And so where Jesus is going, when Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow now. Why not? I'm always following you. I'm always right by your side. I'm always right behind you. I'm always watching out for you. Why can't I not follow you right now? He didn't understand exactly. 
He couldn't follow Jesus yet because he couldn't follow Jesus to this death. He would follow Jesus to his eventual death. And that eventual death would be martyrdom. He would die for the sake of Christ, but not yet. Because first of all, only Jesus could die this death and bring salvation. Peter couldn't do it. Peter couldn't follow Jesus to bring salvation. Jesus had to die and be resurrected, and then it could happen. But not for some time, because also Peter had some work to do. Peter's saying, of course, I will lay down my life. And now here goes Peter after he's told Jesus what to do, questioned Jesus. He's saying, he's now rebuking Jesus. No, I will lay down my life. And this is, of course, this is an emotional response from Peter, and we would probably respond the same. Jesus is saying, you can't follow me now, Peter. No, I will. I will follow you. I will follow you even to death. I've said it before, and I'm saying it again. I will follow you even to death. I will lay down my life for you. But no, Peter, I have to lay down my life for you. An emotional response out of Peter, and we would respond probably the same, but following Jesus is not about emotional responses and feelings. It's about a committed relationship. And Peter is still learning that. It doesn't mean Peter's a bad guy. And we know that Jesus then predicts Peter's denial, which would happen because Peter's devotion to Jesus was based mostly on emotion at this point. But Jesus knew the weakness of Peter just like he knew the weakness of Judas. Jesus said it, I know whom I've called. He knew Judas, he knew Peter. He still chose Judas even though he knew what he was gonna do and he chose Peter. He chose Judas because prophecy needed to be fulfilled, and he chose Peter because prophecy needed to be fulfilled. The gospel would spread. You see, Peter would be transformed by the love of Jesus. Jesus knew their weakness, but he loves them anyway. Judas betrayed Jesus and was not restored because he lacked love, and that allowed the devil in. Jesus commanded them to love because he knew that's what was necessary to keep the devil out. Through lack of love, guys, we allow the devil in. Through disunity, we allow the devil in. But through our love for one another, we are known and we will keep the devil out of our business. So let's keep him out. Peter, he denied Jesus, which you would think, man, he was just as bad as Judas. He denied him, but he was restored. John chapter 21, we'll get to it eventually. Not anytime soon, but we'll get to it eventually. John chapter 21. He denied, as Peter denied Jesus, he was restored because he grew in understanding of the love of Jesus. And in John 21, we'll see that 
that growth is happening in love. As Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter was growing in understanding. And of course, it would come through the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the ministry would then launch out of there and that restoration of Peter. The essential, guys, is love. And it's not love that we would maybe identify in the world today or what the world would identify as love because they say love is love and they have rainbows and all these things that would try to identify what love is. Jesus is love. Humility, sacrifice, laying down his authority, servanthood, love for one another, looking out not for your own interest but for the interest of others. We don't have to be told to look out for our own interests. We do that automatically. But our love for one another within the body of Christ, it's even greater than the love that we have for, for the, the ministering to the world. Our love for one another is greater because the blood of Jesus has brought us together. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. And we trust in you. Would you work in our hearts and in our lives? Draw us near to you, God. We thank you for the love that you have for us. Lord, lead us to respond. Lead us to respond in love and unity toward one another. For anybody in this room who may not yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to give you an opportunity, an invitation to walk in love, to enter into an understanding of the love of Jesus. And here is simply the love of Jesus. He died in your place. He laid down his life. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. So we all need to come to an agreement that we are sinners. And if we can admit that, then we admit that we are deserving of death. But we don't have to experience it. Yes, physically we may die, but through Jesus Christ, we may live forever. That's why we don't have to fear death. So I invite you, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, receive him. And you can say this simple prayer, but it's the work, not the words, it's the work of Jesus Christ in your life in receiving him. But the words simply, you could say, Dear Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I believe in you. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. 
and I believe that you rose from the dead. I desire a relationship with you. I put my trust in you. Would you come into my life? In Jesus' name, amen.